Hi, everybody, and welcome to Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on a deep dive into the happenings of the hospitality industry. Now, sometimes there's a focus on culture, and sometimes there's a focus on travel trends, and sometimes there's a focus on passion projects, but it all comes back to the industry. Now, for those of you who are new here, welcome. Thanks for joining me. And a little bit of background. So I've been covering the food, wine, and hospitality scene for the last 20 years through a variety of outlets, print, online, TV, radio, podcast, and social. And if you live in the DC area, uh, you're familiar with the list, are you on it.com, the online zine that tells you about every food and wine event that's been happening in the DC metro area, promotions, openings, events, all of it. And with the holidays coming, there is so much going on. Uh, of course, every Sunday you tune into Foodie and the Beast. Uh, we've been on air now for 14 years. DC's only food and wine variety show. Uh, and uh, you follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and for the moment, Twitter. I can't figure it out, but right now it's Twitter. So uh, welcome back to Industry Night. Uh, I am here at the beautiful wine lair in uh, downtown DC. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, it is a private wine club and it is pretty ritzy. Uh, and I get to come here every week and do my show and I feel grateful and fortunate to do it. Now, there have been quite a few restaurant openings these last few weeks in the DC area, uh, which is kind of rare in December because normally everybody's really just focused on the holidays. but. These guys are like, no, I'm opening now. Uh, and lucky me, I get a seat at a lot of these tables. So most recently, I was ensconced in a super posh banquet at the just open Lavangarde in Georgetown. Um, any memories that you have of the former space there, the guards, which was like super old and really musty and like sticky with beer on the floor, um, just immediately replaced with this very chic, very luxe. Uh, setting curated by Fatty Saba and Michelin star chef uh, Epi, and I'm sure I am butchering it because my French is terrible. Um, but a tour of the menu includes this massive beignet oozing with faux gras, a slab of cured Scottish salmon, had the silkiest texture, porcini risotto just cascaded with black truffles, um, and my favorite thing, believe it or not, was the salad. It was an entire head of Sala Nova lettuce with this gorgeous Riviera dressing. It is everything you wanted in a salad. Um, the seared bronzino also had foie gras. There was like lots of foie gras. Anyway, it was a decadent meal. Um, it was an extravagant evening. The restaurant is literally six days old, but they killed it. And I'm very excited that it's a part of the DC scene and I cannot wait to go back. Start making your reservations because that place is going to be busy. Um, I also made my way over to the very, very popular 8th Street Northeast area. You know, that street really has amazing restaurants and they're totally neighborhoody. But just because they're for the neighborhood doesn't mean you shouldn't make it a little destination. So uh, this space, irregardless, I'll be honest, I don't love the name, but whatever, I didn't name it and they didn't ask my opinion. But it is called Irregardless, and I took a seat at the bar, because that's what one does when you're super early and you're at a wine bistro. Um, and I had this fabulous conversation with the bartender uh, about which glass of wine to start with. And I actually started with this Maison Passeau Gamay. Um, it was yummy. So co-owners, uh, Mika and Ian Carlin, are behind this unassuming uh, bistro. Um, they serve a tasting menu or a la carte experience, and I sampled really quite a bit. 
They had this amazing poussin, a fabulous parpadelle noodle with a lamb ragu, showered, just showered with Parmesan, um, and this beautiful sweet, sweet ricotta uh, and blood orange dessert that was like so clean and beautiful at the end. And they have a real focus on their wine program with Virginia wines. Um, and if you're not familiar with Virginia wines, there are some amazing, amazing wines. And actually, the one we had is from winemaker Ben Jordan, who used to be with Early Mountain Vineyards. Uh, and he has now uh, formed his own winery, and it's called Midland. And he did a petite Massang, which is not an easy grape to work with. But he really, um, it was beautiful. So there you go. It's a good neighborhood eat. Check that out. Um, that's just two of the recent openings. Also of note, um, a lot I will catch up with later. Caruso's, that's Matt Adler, just opened in Pike and Rose, and it's so yummy. Nick Stefanelli is branching out and opening up his French restaurant called The Clue. I will give you more on that next time. Um, an oldie but a goodie is Rooster and Al, the James Beard-nominated restaurant. I was there last night. Um, so I have lots of delicious deeds to share, but I have this terrific panel uh, that I'm so looking forward to talking to, so I want to get into it. So Charlie Trotter, I feel like a lot of the things I already talked about, like all sort of delve into today's show. Charlie Trotter changed the way we eat in the country today. Um, he was a chef, a restaurateur, cookbook author, television star, multi, 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 multi award winner. Um, but he was also mercurial. Um, he was demanding, temperamental. Maybe he would say he was just driven to do what he wanted to do. Um, and let's be honest, that is kind of what he did. That's what he always did. And I learned so um, much about him because I never met him, or nor did I ever dine at his famous restaurant um, of his name, uh, but my parents did. And um, But I've heard story after story about him over the years because of the legions of chefs and people in the industry who worked under him. Forget Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, it's really six degrees of Charlie Trotter. Um, and in with me today to chat about the man, the myth, his story, is Rebecca Halpern. Uh, she's the director of this fabulous new documentary called Love Charlie. Uh, also with me is Lisa Ehrlich. Uh, this is his first wife and partner. And if you haven't seen the movie, you're probably like, what? But Lisa really is just a fountain of so much knowledge about Charlie Trotter. And she shares her story with so much love and kindness. And I'm so looking forward to talking to her about that. And then um, somebody who really doesn't need introduction, but I'm going to give it to her, is uh, pastry chef Michelle Gayer. She is uh, just amazing, award-winning. She's all over the place. She's done amazing things. She did a cookbook, a pastry book, I should say, with Charlie Potter, and she worked with him. And I can't wait to sort of hear her stories as well. So thank you all for joining me today. Rebecca, I want to start with you. This is your directorial debut. Um, Mazel tov. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I um, I got very lucky with this story because I feel very in many ways that Charlie wrote it himself. So uh, he made my job easy on the one hand, but also not so easy. <laughs> Which kind of sounds like him, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I woke up every day during production thinking that I had to be as excellent as Charlie Trotter in everything I did that day. And I will tell you, um, it was, I was lucky that I had all the time that I did because of COVID so that I could pour myself into the work. 
Well, let's back up a little bit. And I, I will say, having watched um, the documentary twice now, I, I do feel like the bar gets raised. I'm like, oh, maybe I'm not doing as good a job as I should. Like, he was so exacting and so demanding. But the demands he put on everybody else around him were no less than what he demanded of himself. So I kind of want to know how you, how you got the gig. Like, what did you want to do? What was the story you were looking to tell? So um, the producer of the film is a woman by the name of Renee Frigo, and she founded an olive oil company called Lucini Olive Oil, and Charlie Trotter discovered it. He brought it with him onto Oprah, and you can imagine the rest was history for that olive oil company. Uh, he championed it throughout the years, and when he passed away, Renee had wanted to pay homage to him so, you know, as a kind of thank you to cement his legacy. Charlie Trotter came along before social media really took off. And I think uh, his legacy stood to be lost to time. So together with um, Charlie Trotter's best customer, as well as several of the other characters who you see in the film, including his Charlie's family, um, they all decided that a feature documentary was you know, an important piece of that. And I met with Renee. I grew up in Charlie Trotter's hometown. We went to the same high school. My mother was a food writer in Chicago in the 1980s and 90s. And I remember growing up hearing about Charlie Trotter. I was only 10 when he opened the restaurant. But at that time, it was as if, you know, a magical unicorn had descended from heaven to revolutionize American cuisine. And it just so happened that he landed in Chicago in a neighborhood that nobody really would think twice about and put Chicago on the map for food. And so when I went in for that meeting, I just felt like I, it was my, you know, my film to tell it my, I might as well have come up with the idea because it was so deep in my bones um, and I wanted to give a 360 degree view of the guy because I never met him. I only knew about him what the media portrayed. And so for me to go deep was really uh, important. Um, and that's where Lisa Ehrlich, Charlie Trotter's first wife, came in because the access that she and Trotter's family gave us to his personal correspondences, his photographs, all of that from before he opened the restaurant really um, helped shine a light on who he really was on deep down inside. Well, I thought um, the postcards, the letters, I mean, all that knowledge that you were able to gain, I mean, he was this prolific writer, um, really helped help us better understand sort of the young man that he was, the child that he was, how he grew up, and especially in talking with his mother, because his father sounded very similar to Charlie, that they both, you know, worked at this like really high manic level always. Like to me, a lot of it felt manic, like the intensity of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, the family, um, with the exception of Donna Lee, was very intense, I think, um, his father especially. But what was interesting to me as I started to dig into Charlie's story was, you know, he was following in his father's footsteps. And then Grant Ackett, who is the chef and, and proprietor of Alinea, he followed in Charlie Trotter's footsteps. And I just think that cyclical nature of following in the footsteps of the people who we admire in life 
it's really it's kind of remarkable actually when you look back um charlie went by chuck before he opened the restaurant everyone called him chuck and in deciding to name it charlie trotters the restaurant um, he realized that he needed to assume a professional persona if he was going to make the restaurant a success. And in it was doing almost so, like a costume, right? It, like, it was a role. It was like a role that he had to play. I mean, we all have to play professional roles. Uh, who I am on this podcast is different than who I am with my husband when we okay, wake I up. Just first thing know, Rebecca, speak for yourself. I am like this all the time. So <laughs> I think that's great, Nikki. Um, but, my, you know, my point in that is when you play the same role for 25 years and you go through the kinds of trials and tribulations that 25 years at three Michelin star level of excellence brings with it, being top dog, having people coming after you to knock you off your pedestal, being ill, physically unwell, all those things add up. And at the end of that time, you know, it's easy to lose sight of who you really are, of your Chuck. And so when the restaurant closed, we argue that um, Charlie Trotter had lost sight of who he really was and he passed away a year later. It was a very epic story in that regard. Well, it was, um, it was almost like his heart was broken to me. You know, in, I use a term when I'm dealing with restaurants, uh, you know, in my consulting roles, Sometimes it's quicksand, right? Like you just can't get back to where you were. And, and you sort of see that at the end of your film that he just, what, what he used to did that always worked, it just wasn't working anymore. And I, it was heartbreaking. When you're 54 years old, even if you are fully healthy and you have no other demons that you're dealing with, your energy levels alone are very different than they were when you were 24 or 27 when he opened the restaurant. That alone in and of itself makes it difficult to continue at the level that he was. But forgetting about that, when you when you take into account all the things that we present in the film that were starting to the roadblocks that started to stand in the way of him reinventing himself, it's no wonder um, that it went the way it did at the end for him. And and that's what I wanted to achieve. I wanted the audience to understand a little bit better what he was up against and to actually feel some empathy for him, no matter where they shake out on how he treated his employees or how he was with his family. I wanted them, I wanted people to at least appreciate what he went through in order to make Charlie Trotters what it was and to have an impact on American fine dining. Well, I, um, yes, to all of that, you did that and it comes through. I'm, I'm going to just move over to Lisa for a minute. Cause I feel like Lisa can sort of fill in some of the holes. Uh, Lisa, it's so nice of you to join me today. Um, so you were Charlie Trotter's first wife, but you were really with him when he, you know, got into cooking. You were like there at the very beginning. We used to call it BC before cuisine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I knew him. I knew him as, as, as not a cook. I'm not even aspirationally. And, um, and, and yet he was a really intense, passionate person about everything he did. That's just how he approached everything. He really admired this Olympian, uh, Franz Klammer. 
and Franz Klammer, it was uh, uh, the Olympics and at Lillehammer or whatever. And, and this guy was like at every moment ready to like fly off the course. He was, he was skiing so close to the edge. Of 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 his of his limits, and uh, if you go back and listen to the 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 broadcast at the time, um, and I swear it was Frank Gifford or somebody, but he's he's like, oh my God, this guy's about to lose it. It's impossible. It's amazing. And this guy like won. He was a complete dark horse. But Chuck over and over again used to refer to Franz Klammer. Even had a term called clamoring. Well, that's just a metaphor, right? It's such a metaphor for how he lived. And but as you saw his progression, like the fact that he self, you know, self-trained and, and went to all these places to learn and he had a vision when you guys were young and newly married and executing the restaurant, your your participation in opening up that vision was, was important. It meant everything. And your your advice meant everything to him. Yeah, I mean, he told me I, he couldn't do it without me, basically. He sort of gave me an ultimatum. Uh, two weeks before we were opening, I was either on the boat or off the boat. Oh, right, because you so, had Northwestern. You were, like, supposed to go to law school. You had a, a full ride right at Northwestern. I had my parking permit. I, I was ready to start. And the day that I – and so, you know, the the you know two weeks before he we were supposed to open, he had let go the the gentleman he'd hired to be general manager – and he told me, you know, it's just, just try this for a while. I can't do this without you. I don't even think he actually talked to his dad about this first. His, Bob was not happy. Um, not, not so much about me personally, but he just truly didn't believe the couple should work together. And for anybody who knows how hard this, the restaurant business is on couples, yes, it's just, it's really, really, really stressful. It takes the right kind of couple with the right kind of communication. We didn't have any of those skills. We were so young. We didn't really know what we were getting into at all. So it was a total, total pressure cooker. But I just remember I didn't call anybody. I didn't ask for any advice because I, I knew, you know, people would try to talk me out of it. My, my family was completely dismayed. Um, and so I, I went over downtown Chicago to Northwestern Law School and I pulled out and the administrative staff just couldn't believe it. And um, I remember hearing the you know professors in, in the hallways and the excitement of the semester starting. And I just was completely numb. I didn't want to deal with the actual reality of what the decision I was making at that time, because I just felt like um, uh, I had to make the choice that I did, you know, in order to make my marriage work, in order to make Charlie's dream come true. I, I felt like that was the, the right choice to make at the time. Unfortunately, and it doesn't say this in the movie, but I tried to get back into law school and um, the admissions committee was really angry about me pulling out. And one of one of our top customers tried to intervene on my behalf. He was actually on the advisory board to the uh, admissions committee or whatever. He was uh, uh, with one of the major law firms in Chicago, and he he tried to talk to them, and they were they would have none of it. So um, anyway, it, you know, it just closed that door. I love the career and the the life I've uh, I've had, uh, you know, uh, which has ended up uh, 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 as a wine. Um, industry marketing um, per person, and and I, yeah, I love I love this business. I fell in love with wine as much as with Charlie in a way, but well, you know it, it was a pretty big. Like people bring people together for a different. You know, like you start at A and B, but sometimes that A then jumps to G. You know, it takes you someplace else. 
So I'm sort of curious if we can just dive into it for a couple minutes. Like, as once you did get divorced, I mean, you created the restaurant together, Charlie Trotter's. It was this incredible experience. He made farmers famous. He, you know, made tasting menus a thing. He put um, things that we now take for granted today, like uh, chef's table. Like there isn't a restaurant I go to that doesn't have a chef's table. You know, all these things were were part of your world. And, and as you watched him ascend, as Charlie Trotter's continued to rise and rise and rise, how did that, what did that have, how did you talk to him or did you discuss things with him or were there long times that you guys did not talk to each other? Like, how did that work for you? For most of, of our, of his life, we talked every, at least every couple of weeks, if not every week. So none of this really came as a surprise to me. Um, you know, because I, I sort of evolved along with him, but I had a really different role in his life um, than most of the people he talked to regularly. I think I was sort of more of an intimacy coach for him. It was the person I was when we were at the restaurant. He 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 struggled with relating to people um, and and connecting in some level or, or putting himself in their shoes. And so at the restaurant, I was always trying to say, well, what they really mean, Charlie, or they they think you're thinking this. So, you you know, you should perhaps uh, have a talk to with them one-on-one -on -one or, you know, or they might interpret this wrong or they're not understanding your jokes, Charlie. <laughs> he had a real sarcastic sense of humor that was uh, not always well understood. Um, and, and so over the years, we tended to talk about, about his relationships and, and what was going on in his personal life as much as what was going on in the restaurant. I think with his friends, in the culinary world, he talked about food and um, and he talked about, um, you know, and so I, I was, you know, following along when he opened up um, the restaurant in Cabo or the place in Las Vegas or when things didn't work out in New York. But it was always more, you know, as a friend. And, and despite the fact that our marriage didn't work out, we we were we our friendship never changed. Not everybody can be married and not everybody can be business partners, you know, but, but we stayed friends. Well, and it's, I mean, obvious because you were there for the anniversaries, you know, he found, he leaned on you in ways um, that were really interesting to me. I don't think you see that with a lot of divorced couples. My husband, I'm wife number three. I mean, we've been together forever, but he certainly, he talks to the first wife, but he doesn't talk to the second wife at all. So, I mean, it doesn't happen for everybody because... You, there's, there was just something more there. And I want to bring in uh, Michelle for a second. Hey, Michelle, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. So, Michelle, you, Lisa was in the front of the house, and she was also sort of, you know, therapy, you know, the ear to listen to and to talk to him. But you were in the kitchen with him. And, I, you know, I feel like a Charlie Trotter in today's world would be... I don't know how he would work in today's world, in the kitchens today, and, and how things work, but what was it like for you as a woman being in that restaurant? Um, intense. It was, you know, every day was keeping up with the boys and trying to beat them at their own game. You know, mm -hmm. Patricia was one of the front of the house managers, and she and I were the only two women on the leadership team for years. 
And um, I don't know that I had a lot of time to think about it because it was game on from nine o'clock in the morning until whenever it was time to go. Well, Rebecca makes that very clear in the documentary that it is like if the intensity, I mean, you could feel it. I didn't have to be in that kitchen to feel how hard it was to work there, but he had this level of expectations. How did that translate to your pastry program and the kinds of things that you were making? Um, it translated in a way that you were always trying to achieve greatness every day with every dish, with every bite. And you were just always in the pursuit of that. And you were to do whatever it took to get there whether it was hours standing in the kitchen, sourcing the most amazing products that no one else could get, or you know, inventing new techniques to showcase these things. Well, I'd love to talk about the inventing new techniques because he did so much to change the culinary landscape. And how, what did you learn from that? What, did you, what do you take from that? And you know, do you do things today and you're like, oh, that's a little Charlie. Well, I think uh, my whole creative um, childhood was there. You know, I learned how to be creative and I learned how to be spontaneous and I learned how to reinvent my pastries every other day. You know, in the movie, Ray Harris was there and we made a new dessert for him, four new desserts every night for him. And it was, how are we gonna reinvent this peach to make it shine, to make it delicious? to make you want coming back for more, to keep those things going every day. Which, again, brings us back to the pressure cooker that you were really working on, especially with a tasting menu. I think that there is a um, misnomer out there for people who love to eat, the foodies out there, that they think a tasting menu is like easier on the restaurant than a la carte. But that really isn't the case because Everything has to be perfect. You're not, you're, you're constantly doing the same thing over and over and it all has to stay at the same level. So was right, that I mean, a, 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 go ahead, I'm sorry. You're doing a tasting menu and it's the same tasting menu for that season is one thing. But when you're doing a new tasting menu every single night, it's a different ball game. No, totally. I completely agree with you. But I think, you know, think about the people who don't know the business, right? Like, they just think that it's easier on the restaurant because they know what they're doing. But you guys changed it every day. And at that time, that was really new. I mean, you weren't seeing restaurants change their menu every day, especially not a 10-course no. dinner. And how did you feel about people dining in the kitchen? Uh, they were just there. I didn't care about the people in the kitchen. <laughs> like who gets a shit? I don't care. I don't know. I was, I, it was, it was, they were there and you did your job and it was cool and you served them. And I, you know, I was more concerned about the foodstuffs and the ice creams being spun and the 12 different petty fours and everything tasting the freshest and the best. Which you clearly accomplished when you were working with Charlie, um, as he was hitting his top and then there was a, a demise. As he started with his health and other issues, the Michelin to star things, the stuff with Grant uh, Ackett's, which Rebecca, by the way, I, I'm just curious. I'm going to throw this out to all of you. What would Charlie Trotter say about Grant being in the documentary as much as he is? What would 
Well, I would like to hear what you all think about it because he, he adds so much to it. Um, but he's in it a lot considering they had a lot of issues. Rebecca? Well, I'm curious to know what Michelle and Lisa think about yeah, that, frankly. So I like to say that Chuck would love this film as long as it wasn't about him. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's true, Michelle? I mean, I think that he would want it about the cuisine and about the food and about the restaurant. Do you know what I mean? And I think he would probably have mixed feelings about Grant, you know? I didn't. I I learned all about Grant in the film. I didn't know they had all that stuff. Like I was at the Las Vegas restaurant when all the Grant stuff was happening. Oh, well, I had read Grant's book and interviewed Grant years ago when that book came out, so I knew some of the story. Um, so that wasn't new. Um, but I, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about really all of you about when he did the cookbooks and his dedication to photography because he really changed what it looked like. And Michelle, in your book, which I have and have had for a long time, you know, the photography in there is just beautiful. So where did that, is that just part of his perfectionism? I mean, Charlie's mom, yeah, yeah. But his mother's an artist, was an artist. And um, Chuck's first love was film and visual arts. I think mm. he saw food from a different perspective at the time than most chefs did you know he saw it three-dimensionally sorry michelle that he just saw it differently and was able to do it so what was it like putting that together with him because it's hard when you have different artists working together right to create a book well when he said when he came to me and said we're gonna do this i was like okay. I mean, I, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like, but I had, you know, I knew that I had to go in early. We came up with ideas. I went in early, made all the, all the pastries and all the desserts for the book and then went and shot it. And we would shoot the picture. He would say, yes, let's change it. And then we wrote the recipe. I remember many days he would not let me leave the restaurant until I wrote three recipes for the book by looking at the picture. It wasn't, we had the recipe, we had the picture. So we always started with the visual. And I think, you know, to Lisa, was Lisa saying, it's it, it's all about the art and the visual for him. And so then we can when, work off that. Go ahead, when Lisa. We were, when we were catering together, so imagine this, this was years, you know, before we opened up the restaurant, he would have me clean lettuce. And I would have to study each leaf and study the vein of the leaf and tear it exactly on the vein so that it looked as if it would have come out of nature. Like, if, I, I, I'm not kidding. I'm a, you're cooking a, a meal for 12 people. I believe people it. And you've got, you, you're but, stressing me out. You're all stressing me out. Absolutely. I'm <laughs> and I would, I would be carefully, carefully tearing these lettuce leaves going, oh, my God. Like, you know, I'd be shaking. And he'd be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't get it. Well, you know, he said something, uh, Rebecca, you captured this, uh, one of these quotes, which I loved, which he said, um, you know, the basically the customer isn't always right. And I loved what he was saying. He was so ahead of his time because it is really the truth. The customer really doesn't know what they want when they come in the restaurant. The restaurant is 
giving an experience. And he really went about it that way. And you captured that so beautifully. Were there things that you read or things that you found out that you were like, oh, I did not see that coming. That's fascinating. Um, a lot. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, when I interviewed Grant, I asked him about a tasting menu and if it's meant to be a dialogue or a mo with the, of the chef with the audience, the chef with his diners or a monologue in terms of what the chef wants to put out there. And, um, you know, I think it's a, I, from what the research bore out for me and Michelle and Lisa may disagree with this. And but, you know, Charlie said it himself. I think it was his monologue. It was his overture. It was his piece of music that he was playing for the audience, for the diner to enjoy. And um, how they engaged with it for themselves, you know, was up to them ultimately, right? But he was putting out there he, his own philosophies, his own, you know, point of view on food through the craft of cooking and what was on the plate. Um, you know, the film very much argues that Chef, Char you know, Charlie Trotter's restaurant was Chef Charlie Trotter's stage. That's why he put a table in the middle of the kitchen so that he could perform and his his chefs could all perform for the guests in an even more profound way than they had before. He says it's to create an experience for them. But I, I think we'd be making a mistake, and this is one of the things that I sort of grappled with throughout the filmmaking. I think we'd be making a mistake if we didn't say there was no ego there from Charlie in so far as what he was getting out of that performance for himself. Sure. Yeah. If that I, makes I think any sense. It was all it very performative in a big way as well. So for as much as, as intrinsic and, um, altruistic it was for him to want to create these experiences for others i do think that there you know he was obviously getting something out of it in the end too well With, go ahead Lisa. just as the restaurant evolved too and the more he became charlie he got more and more invested in in it i think which I mean, it really comes through in the film which is that he was chuck and then he was charlie but then he tried to go back to Chuck, but he just couldn't, it just couldn't happen for him. And um, Michelle, I, I would love to hear sort of your perspective towards, you know, when the restaurant closed and, you know, the recession and all these things were changing, how, how it was for you and what that experience was like. Well, I was definitely worried about him. I wasn't mm -hmm. at the restaurant when all of that was happening. But I knew that that was his life and his world. Do you know what I mean? That was his thing. And I wasn't sure how it was going to go. Do you know what I mean? Oh, right. But given that he had given you, I mean, it, it is amazing when we hear about, you know, what a hard ass he was and how hard he was to work for, you know, this whole narrative that is out there. Um, but he really gave people platforms. He gave you an incredible platform to do the incredible. work that you do and to be where you are today. He was the only non-family member at my wedding. Do you know what I mean? Like, we had, like, a real great friendship. Do you know what I mean? And Rick Nelson, who's the food writer here in Minneapolis, 
called him to interview him and said, you know, Michelle's like a sister to me. And I always thought that was just like the most endearing, lovely thing to say. Do you know what I mean? And we had a different kind of respect. And I don't know if it was because I was pastry. I, I don't know. But we definitely had a special connection. Do you know what I mean? And I'm yeah, grateful. it comes through. And yeah, he was always very generous with me and my family and my career and everything. Internal, you know, so grateful. Well, I can say this to both Lisa and Rebecca. It seems like he was generous to a lot of people, that he gave lots of people opportunities. And um, I'm thinking of like Ren uh, Reggie Watkins. I mean, that's an incredible story there. And um, so he was an incredibly gregarious and generous person to the people that meant the most to him. One of the first times I met him, I admired a sweater he was wearing. It was a golf sweater. It was an Izod golf sweater. And I was like, I like that sweater. He took it off and gave it to me. I mean, that used to be the rule at the restaurant, Lisa. If, if, if someone liked one of someone's tie or something, you, you had to take it off and give it to them. Oh, stop it. That's crazy. No, that's true. That doesn't, that totally doesn't surprise me. That doesn't, you know, and now hearing that story... I like that makes all the sense, right? He and he would he would be the first person to to throw out his credit card, and and there could be twenty people dining at a table, and and I never saw him he hesitate. He um, really truly believed. Um, I I I think you know some people think that his charitable work was about his ego. But I truly believe that he really wanted to make the world a better place. And he had a, a, a philosophy of the world, which wasn't, we, our, we were both political science majors and, and, and we used to stay up all night arguing about politics. But, um, but he believed that, that you could change and transform people's lives by expanding their, their, their worldview, by, by, by exposing them to experiences that were bigger than themselves. Which, I mean, and he wound up he, doing, if you think about it, he wound up doing between, you know, bringing new ingredients, new farmers, the whole dining experience. I mean, he changed the way this country eats. Michelin came here. Michelin wasn't here before. I mean, all these things that we, like I said earlier, we take it for granted now. It is important that respect be paid. And Rebecca, I'm gonna, because I know we're running out of time here, I'm gonna bring it back to you. You know, with this culmination of the film, um, you, there is a lot of respect. I mean, I can listen to Wolfgang Puck for hours. I mean, he's such a delight. You brought together so many people who love Charlie, uh, some people who had contentious relationships with Charlie, but you, you showed the whole man. And, uh, but it was done with a lot of uh, kindness and, and love, I think. It really came through that way. Thank you. You know, Nikki, it's funny, just back to the point that we were just talking about. I think Charlie Trotter and the chefs of his generation, the Daniel Baloods, the Thomas Kellers, the Eric Repairs, all of them were masters of crafting a very unique and special experience for their audiences. And they were, were like, they were extremely adept at eliciting 
feelings of, you know, making other people feel special through their work. And I think that is a skill and an attribute to the hospitality world that, that very few other industries or businesses seek to accomplish in their audience. Maybe show business does it, right? Because we want to elicit emotion in our audience. Um, but, you know, they they were remarkable at that. And you see it today in Boulud's restaurants and you see it today in, in you know, the French laundry experience that so many people still seek out. Um, I just think that that generation of chefs you know, imparted a kind of love and care to the work that they did, all in the interest of creating a special experience for someone else. So to me, you know, this was a special experience working on this project with all of these fantastic women and people in Charlie's life. And, you know, when we started making the movie, we thought about doing just a survey piece on Charlie's life story, interviewing everybody and their brother, whoever knew Charlie and had something to say about him. But when COVID hit and, you know, our budget started to shrink because of that, I decided his story was too valuable to do this kind of survey thing. Let's lean into the narrative of it and follow this incredible rise and cautionary tale of what can happen when your identity gets caught up in your work. And that is Charlie Trotter's story. I, it is. Um, I always say I'm very fortunate that my passion is my profession. But it's not all that I am. And I think your cautionary tale about Charlie Trotter was he was Charlie Trotter. And if there was no Charlie Trotter, then who was he? Right. Well, he was Chuck, but, um, he, but didn't he didn't want to be Chuck. He didn't get to be <laughs> Chuck enough in his life right. through the years. As, as the restaurant, the success of the restaurant started to... I don't want to say corrupt him in a negative sense, but started to change him. I think he got further and further away from who Chuck really was. And that's why at the end he wanted to go back to school, he said, to study philosophy. And I think that was an attempt on his part to try to reconnect with his authentic self. You see it in the movie. There's an animation that we do of a letter where he wrote Charlie, then crossed it out and wrote Chuck, that was an actual letter that he sent back in the day. So he had this awareness of who he really was. And just imagine how hard that must be for someone at the end of their career to not be able to reconnect with that part of themselves. It must be so painful. And that's kind of the approach that I took to the story. Well, um, it really came through. And I, I thank you all so much for joining me today and, and having this little round table. I know how busy you all are. Rebecca, I know you're going to be popping on Foodie and the Beast later this week, uh, where we'll have some time to talk with my husband about this a little bit more. Um, but Lisa and Michelle, I, I just, I love both of your perspectives. You're both amazing in the movie and it's, um, it is a cautionary tale, but it's also a love letter. I really, I mean, it's called Love, Charlie. And um, I think that all really comes through that everybody feels so much about him. So um, I want to thank you all. If everybody wouldn't mind, it would be great if you can just 
Uh, Lisa, if everybody can know where to you know, find more about you, and Michelle, with everything you're doing, if everybody can find out more about you, and Rebecca, where we can find the movie. So Lisa, let's start with you. Um, well, I am an intense introvert, but um, you can find me on, I am on social media. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, and um, I'm on Instagram, and Twitter, uh, for now, um, etc. at Lisa B. Ehrlich. So I have my middle initial. Yeah. So, and I'm a big Pinterest person too. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'll have those links. Uh, uh, so, and my business is called Drink Cultivated. Excellent. Thank you, Lisa. Michelle, where can we find you? I mean, I know where to find you, but where can everybody? You can find me in Minneapolis. You can find me in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. uh, being a food scientist and pastry chef, I'm the Michelle Geyer on Instagram. And that's kind of the big one. Great. Okay, Michelle, thank you so much. And Rebecca, thank you. tell everybody, please, where we can find more about the movie, where we can see it, the whole thing. Yes, absolutely. So the film is currently available for rent or purchase on Amazon or Apple in the United States, where it's going to be released in Canada January 31st. And then for chefs in Europe who have been asking about it, and there are quite a few because Charlie had a real impact overseas, we are working currently on um, getting international distribution for the film as well. So sit tight. There's more news to come about Love, Charlie. You know, watch it with your friends and family over the holidays. It's a very inspiring story and um, certainly don't watch it on an empty stomach. No. <laughs> That is totally true. Um, there's such, I mean, the food is so amazing to watch uh, and to hear all the stories from all the chefs and all of you uh, today. So I want to thank you both for joining me. Just hold on for a sec while I wrap up. Um, thank you, too, for everybody listening today. Um, if you have a chance, you should definitely see this movie. Love, Charlie. It's such a wonderful love letter to Charlie Trotter. And it's such rich with stories and so much information that, you know, when you just hear sort of the media narrative or you sort of hear these war stories or myths from the past, you know, nothing is always as it seems. They're layers, right? Like an onion. Um, so I really uh, greatly appreciate everybody's time today. And I appreciate you joining me here on Industry Night. And as I do on every show, I am going to say, listen, it is busy out there and I love it. It's so much fun. But the staffing shortages are still real. And some people are wearing masks because there's like the flu and COVID and all these great things. So everybody just take their Xanax or your kindness pill, whatever it is you need. When you go out there and just go out there and enjoy, just know that the restaurant wants you to have a fantastic time. They do not want to piss you off. It's busy. They're doing their best. You should enjoy. Take a deep breath and just be kind, please. Uh, on that note, follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm not on Pinterest. Uh, I am on LinkedIn, but I always forget about it. And uh, thank you for joining me here on Industry Night. Check out the list, areyouonit.com. And check us out every Sunday on Foodie and the Beast. That's my husband and I. We always have a great show. Uh, thanks to my Industry Night team. They do such a great job. And uh, be safe out there and have a delicious week. Produced by HeartCast Media.